All right. Well, before we get uh, started into today's message, I was hoping we could have a little bit of fun. Uh, I don't know if any of you follow along on Facebook. Uh, KPTV put out a poll the other day on Facebook, and they asked their audience, what is the most Pacific Northwest thing that you have ever said? And they received over 1,700 comments on their little poll. And so I thought I'd pull out a few of my favorites and ask you to play along with me and see how many of you have said some of these very things. So uh, the first comment that I loved was, I did it to myself when we lived in Kansas. It was raining, and I said, oh, don't worry, my toes are webbed. They looked at me like I was serious and said, oh, I'm sorry, it's something we say in Oregon. (laughs) How many of you have claimed that you have webbed toes? Only a few of you. Okay, some people are shy. That's right. Uh, How about this? We might have even said this today since it's such a beautiful day. The mountain is out. Yes. (laughs) How many of you said it today? A a few. Uh, Yes, the mountain is out. Or something else. It's a three, four, five mountain day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a number of peaks you can stand on and you can see all the different mountains and name them for all the kids. So um, this is one I know we've all said. Fill with regular, please. (laughs) Or supreme, you know, if if you prefer. Uh, and, you know, here in Oregon, of course, it's JoJo's and not potato wedges. And it's Filbert's, not hazelnuts, right? <laughs> hey, <laughs> that's the first time I've ever gotten an applause in a sermon. That's great. <laughs> Filbert's it is. Okay. Uh, how about, uh, it's not raining, it's just liquid sunshine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, this is one I didn't know until reading in the comments. Did you know that it is a Pacific Northwest thing to say, we're going to the coast instead of going to the beach? I didn't know that was unique to us. I just thought that's what people said. Uh, but yeah, you, we're going to the coast. Um, how about this one? This was uh, rather unique. I don't tan, I rust. <laughs> some? some? Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, And then here's the last one, and I'm sure we've said some variation of this. Umbrellas are for tourists. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Uh, Well, those are the last of the amens I'm going to get today. I I may as well just call it good for now. But Uh, These are things we say all the time, because this is where we live. This This is who we are. We say these things almost without thinking, Uh, sometimes tongue in cheek. Uh, maybe, but sometimes we just say them because we say them. That's what we say here. We're formed by where we live. And today's passage, we're going to find out that it's very important to know where it is that we're living, where we're dwelling, where it is that we abide. Because where we dwell forms who we are, how we, shape, how we react to the world, and the things that we tend to say and do just like being part of the Pacific Northwest does that for us. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, or if you have your Bible app, you can pull that out. Pro tip, put on airplane mode. My son taught us that. And our ushers here have extra Bibles if you so need. Don't be shy. We will be following along in John chapter 15. We're going to read the first 17 verses this morning. 
But before I do, I want to set the stage a little bit. Because I think the vine and the branches story that we're going to uh, dive into today is familiar to many of us who've grown up in church. And sometimes it's the familiar passages that are the hardest for us to think critically about. They feel too familiar. We know where it's going. We know what's about to be said. And we kind of tune out. But I want to set the stage and remind us what's the context. What are we looking at? What happened in John chapter 14 and what's he going to say next? So at the end of John chapter 14, John talks about Jesus going up into heaven and we are going to receive the Holy Spirit in his stead. So the promise of the Holy Spirit immediately precedes this passage. And then if we proceed on through our passage today and into what follows, we see immediately following this that John is going to talk about how the, the world is going to hate the disciples in the same way that it hated him. So this is very relevant for us because we actually find ourselves in this very moment. Jesus has gone into heaven and he has sent us the Holy Spirit and we are in the midst of a hostile world. And so this message is for us just as much as it was for the disciples. So with that background in mind, let's read John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Will you pray with me? Father God, we are gathered here this morning to hear from you. Thank you that you are here with us. Thank you that you promised to meet us here. Two or more are gathered, and so we know you are here. Speak to us, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I mentioned, this passage is very familiar to many of us. But I don't know about you, but if I start off reading this, I'm a little caught off guard by verse 2. Verse 1 seems pretty innocuous. It's not a big deal. All right, 
I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my father is the gardener. So far, so good. But verse 2 gets pretty dramatic pretty fast. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Wow. This bearing fruit stuff is pretty darn important. He's going to lop off every branch that doesn't produce fruit. Later on in the passage, we're going to see that branch is going to get burned. But every, every part of the vine that produces fruit, God prunes so that it will produce more fruit. I feel like God is taking this fruit-bearing business pretty seriously. And it's so serious, in fact, that I have historically read this with a twinge of guilt and fear. And I don't think that guilt and that fear is actually warranted. Let me move us on to verse 3, and I'll show you why. Jesus says, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Jesus says, you're already clean. Now, I don't understand what that word clean is doing there. Nothing about tending vines or anything like that seems to indicate cleanliness. But what is hard to see in English, but what John is doing is, is playing on some Greek words here. So I'm going to put them on the screen. He's using two different words. So in, the, in verse 2, when he says the father prunes the healthy vine so it produces more fruit, he's using the Greek word kasairo. And then later he says, you are already clean. Katharas. Kasairo, katharas. He's using these related words, which by the way, the word for prune there is kind of rare. It's not the usual agricultural word for pruning a branch. He's intentionally using these words to bounce off one another and say, listen, if there's any question where you stand, disciples of mine, you stand in the category of the clean, the pruned fruit. You're not the dead branches. The dead branches have been cut off and they are far from me. You who have been cleansed by the word of Christ are part of the healthy vine. And that healthy vine is supposedly producing fruit. So what's the fruit? This is where my reading of this passage, I think, historically has been faulty. You see, what I did was I took every reference to fruit and harvest that is all throughout the New Testament, and I boiled it down to one idea. Many times throughout the New Testament, when we're talking about bearing fruit or gathering in a harvest, we're talking about people's lives being changed by the gospel and coming to Jesus Christ. That is often what this thing is talking about, this bearing fruit idea is talking about. But I don't think that's actually what's happening in this passage. In fact, as I was studying for this sermon, I was really surprised to find out that nowhere in John's gospel does he use the word preach, as in preach the gospel. Not because it's not important, but because John is focused on other things. And we've seen that all throughout this series of conversations with Jesus. These very important topics that John is focusing on all throughout the book. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with a dying world is absolutely essential to what it means to be a Christian. I don't want to deny that, and I don't want to be misheard on that score. 
But I do want to say, I think the fruit that John is talking about here is something else. He has a different focus in mind. And his point of emphasis, I think, comes down to one word. And it's the word abide. In Greek, the word is meno. And this is John's favorite word. In fact, throughout all of John's writings, John uses the word meno 69 different times. For John, this is a very specific word. He has a, a, almost a, a theological meaning, a distinct meaning that he has for this word meno. And many of our translations will use the word remain. That's the NIV that I read today. It uses the word remain to translate meno. But I would suggest maybe today we can entertain the word abide. And I do that because the word abide is familiar enough, but it's not something we use in everyday speak. And so with it being just a little bit outside of the norm, maybe with the word abide, we can start hearing John's special usage of that word. So every time we come across the word remain in this passage, I want you to think abide, because that's the word that John is using here. In fact, throughout this passage, he's going to use the word abide a full 11 times. 10 of those are going to come in the next seven verses. So let's dive in. What does this word abide mean, and what is John trying to emphasize? So verse 4, abide in me as I also abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. Wow. Four times in one verse. And I think if we're familiar with this passage, we may have come to this passage and thought, oh, okay, I'm the vine, you are the branches, remain in me. I think we all anticipate that command. But do we also anticipate what he says after that? As I also remain in you. This isn't something we do. This is a place we remain, we dwell, we live. Jesus is inviting us into a dynamic relationship in which we abide with him and he abides with us. It goes both ways. And this vine and the branches imagery is beautiful for this because it's talking about an organic connected relationship. Jesus is saying, abide here and I will abide with you. And out of this organic connection with me, fruit will emerge. He's going to hit that same point here as we move into verse five. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, You're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. I want to pause over that last verse. Does that make you uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable. He's going to pick up these dead branches and burn them. That doesn't sound like the actions of a loving God. It's really, really stark. But I want to ask the gardeners and the arborists in the room, how do you feel when you take off a dead branch or a dead shoot from a plant? Do you think to yourself, oh, I should replant this thing. It might grow. 
or I might, I might get some life out of this or some use out of this. Uh, of course not. It's dead. All we're doing by taking it off and taking it to the burn pile is acknowledging the reality of what has happened to that branch. That branch is dead. It is lifeless. There is nothing else to do with it than to put it in the burn pile. This is a statement of just bare fact as much as it is a warning. Sometimes reality is just that harsh. If something dies, it's dead. And Jesus is saying that his, the gardener, the fruit, uh, the vine tender, will come along and for the sake of the health of the whole vine, will remove the dead things, put them away, and tend to the health of what remains. That is part of what the vine tender does. But as stark as that may sound, the joy on the other side for all of the rest of the fruit-bearing branches is just as great. So look at verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. He's saying that as we live and dwell, abide in this organic relationship with Jesus, that our desires and his desires will sync up and we will be able to ask whatever we wish and the Father will grant it. That is an amazing gift. And this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Elsewhere, we learn that Jesus teaches, they will know we are Christians by our love. Exactly. And it's that idea of love being a marker of true discipleship that Jesus is going to turn to now. Look at verse 9 with me. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. As wonderful and as great as this section is, and as much joy as it leads to, there is still one word in this passage that makes me uncomfortable. And it's the very first word of verse 10. If. Such a small word, but with big consequences. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that his love for me is preconditioned on my obedience? If I obey his commands, then he will love me? And so in other words, if I don't obey his commands, then I'm going to end up like one of those dead branches. He's just going to cut me off and his love is not going to be there for me. Is, is that, is there, are we talking about a works-based salvation where I have to earn his love by doing what he commands? I don't think so. In fact, I think the, the very fact that verse 11, immediately after that, says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete, says there's something else going on here. This isn't a warning. This is something else. So what is that something else? That something else is going to start with verse 12. But before we get into verse 12, I want you to see the similarity, in fact, the exact same words that exist 
between verse 12 and verse 17. My command is this, love each other. The exact same words begin verse 12 and verse 17. Why? This is what scholars, Bible scholars, they always have to have a fancy word for everything. So their fancy word for this is inclusio. It's a way of saying this, this, these are bookends. Everything from this bookend to this bookend is one thought unit. One unit of thought. This is my command. See, I just told you, this is my command. Everything in between should run together. And I think this is the answer to the if you obey my commands. So let's read verses 12 through 17 as one thought. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last, which is actually meno again. Fruit that will abide. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. So Jesus says, if you follow my commands, you will remain in my Father's love. If. But what is the command? The command is to love one another. And love one another, not just in the Sunday school definition of love, but in a really drastic, being willing to sacrifice and lay down your life for someone else sort of love. That is his command. But look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will abide. This isn't something we do. This is something that God does in us. That's where abiding in this organic connection with Jesus matters. Jesus commands and he promises the exact same thing in this passage. And it all comes through abiding in him. When we abide, the fruit will grow up in us. In fact, we're familiar with this fruit from other passages. What's the, what are the fruits of the Spirit that we see in Galatians? Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. What is that very first fruit that Paul talks about? Love. This is what being in dynamic, ongoing relationship, abiding with Christ means. The very thing he commands is the very thing he will produce in us when we abide with him. So, All throughout this passage, Jesus has set himself up as the example to follow. He said, I want you to abide in me in just the exact same way that I have been abiding in the Father. I obey him and I want you to obey me in the exact same way. I want you to follow my lead and do as I have done. So, if you would, with me, I'd love to take a master class from uh, the author and perfecter of our faith on what it means to abide. What did Jesus do? How did it look? Well, for starters, Jesus knew the scriptures. 
In fact, when he was walking with the two men on the road to Emmaus, he expounded upon the entire Old Testament and demonstrated to them how he was the Messiah. That took a mastery of the Old Testament. And he demonstrated his thorough knowledge of the scriptures after his resurrection. And the, the Bible says their hearts burned within them. Jesus knew the scriptures. Maybe as we look toward abiding, maybe we need to look for a new rhythm in studying and, and reading the scriptures. What else did Jesus do? Jesus went to church. It says that on the Sabbath, it was his custom to go to the synagogue. I think since COVID, some of our church rhythms have been disrupted. Where are you at today? Do we need a new commitment to showing up to church like Jesus? Maybe so. Jesus prayed at meals. He prayed and then he broke bread and he gave it to his disciples. Jesus frequently chose that moment as another opportunity to connect with his father. Jesus took retreats. We see this at various times. They're usually just very small verses here and there dotted throughout the gospel narrative that Jesus would often go off by himself to a quiet place to pray. When's the last time you had your own personal spiritual retreat? Maybe that's a way that you can grow in abiding. Jesus prayed at times of distress. Now, I think it's pretty natural Human nature, we tend to do this. We tend to pray in times of distress. We tend to say, God, help me. But Jesus showed us another way. When he prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. So long his disciples fell asleep multiple times. Jesus was not just praying for help. He was pouring himself out in the midst of his distress. Jesus prayed. Maybe we need to get pretty emotionally honest in our prayers as well. Jesus always lived in obedience. He did whatever the Father told him to do. This is how he lived his entire life. He was so connected with the Father that he knew from moment to moment to moment exactly what the Father expected of him. And that's the only thing he ever did. So I have a confession to make. I got to this part in writing my sermon and I thought to myself, really? That's it? You finish seminary and your very first message is go to church, love each other, read your Bibles and pray. (laughs) Yes. And at the same time, an emphatic no. And the reason I say no is because If we told people that showed up in Oregon for the very first time, all you have to do to be a Pacific Northwesterner is say, fill with regular, please. That's absurd. Doing these small little things is not what makes us Northwesterners. There is a way of thinking and a way of living and a way of being in this space that makes us Northwesterners. We don't just say, oh, look, the mountain is out. There is a feeling that goes with that. We have endured a long, gray, drizzly, snowy winter. We are tired of the gloom, and look, the mountain is out. 
It means something after a summer, uh, winter like we just had. When we say the mountain is out, hope springs eternal, right? It's, there is something more than just those words present there. And I think this is why we use the word coast instead of going to the beach. We don't just mean we're going to go put our toes in the sand. We're going to the coast where the marine layer wraps us in its embrace, where it reminds us to pack a jacket even in July. It's, it's going to musty houses and pulling out old board games. It's getting taffy at your favorite store or it's getting ice cream at, I still call it, the Tillamook Cheese Factory, Right? We go to the coast because it's more than just the beach. It's an experience. It's, it's a place. And it means something unique to us. So I can't tell you that Jesus did all these things, and, and you should too, and, and that's what's gonna, what it's going to take for you to abide in Christ. Any more than I could say, all you have to do is say the mountain is out, fill with regular, go to the coast, don't tan, you're going to rust, Right? These things don't make us Northwesterners. Being a Northwesterner makes us say those things. And Jesus' abiding in Christ, abiding in the Father, made him do all of these things. It made him seek moments of solitude where he could pray. It made him take advantage of meals so he could pray again. It made him intimately familiar with the Scriptures. It made him go to church as his custom to be with people who are glorifying and honoring his father. Abiding is what we're after. These things are just symptoms, expressions of abiding. Now, what if we really did it? Then the fruit would grow up. The fruit would grow up and we would start to love like Jesus loved. Jesus didn't stop with all of these things. Jesus also laid down his life for his friends. Jesus died for you and for me, and he did it because he was abiding in the Father, and the fruit of that relationship grew up into a self-sacrifice for us because that's what abiding produces. That's the fruit of abiding. So how do you do it? You do all of these things and more. You get creative. You seek opportunities to abide, to dwell, to live with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And allow this fruit to grow up in your life. I have a friend that likes to say, the only, his definition of success is just doing it longer than everybody else. And that's not a bad definition of success here. Abide and keep abiding. And just do it longer than everybody else. And when you think you've arrived, and when you think you have finally matured, take a look at your fruit. How are you loving? Are you willing to lay down your life for the person three rows in front of you, four rows behind you? If you're not there yet, come back to basics. Abide. The invitation is out there. Let's pray. Father God, here we are.
We want to remain in you. We want to abide with you. We want our lives to be characterized by you, infused by you, organically connected with you. Thank you that you sent us the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit makes possible this amazing gift of salvation that Jesus paid for us on the cross. God, we depend on you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to enliven us, to make us your own. So, Father, abide with us. We want to abide with you. In Jesus' name. Amen.